Maracaibo. It was the heart of Venezuela. It's the capital of the state of Zulia. 2.5 million people living there. Teresa Bo reports on Latin America for Al Jazeera. She's been in and out of Venezuela for more than a decade. Oil won't mix with water, and yet here in Venezuela, a forest of oil derricks grows from the water of Lake Maracaibo. The place where oil was discovered, you know, it, it, it has this whole symbolism of, of when Venezuela was, in a way, a, a country that was a major oil producer where things were actually going well. Maracaibo. This is a city that moves to many rhythms. By day, the tempo is set by a booming industrial prosperity that makes Maracaibo refuse to stop growing, spreading, modernizing. That was a Shell Oil Company video from 1965 about Maracaibo in its prime, when it was Venezuela's ultimate oil town. But things have changed a lot since then, in Maracaibo and across the country. Most of the people have been focusing on what's happening in the capital in Caracas. There were protests regularly. You know, there, there was a big political story ongoing. But we've been hearing for a long time that, you know, Maracaibo was in trouble. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Venezuela should be one of the world's richest countries. Instead, Maracaibo shows how far it's collapsed. And that's what we're talking about today. The crisis in Venezuela and how people in Maracaibo are staying alive. Old producing countries tend to be rich countries, but Venezuela is an exception because of the way, you know, it was handled. It was like a, the oil sector in Venezuela was the goose with the golden eggs and it was destroyed. In the 50s, oil made Venezuela the world's fourth richest nation per capita. Then came President Hugo Chavez, who was elected in 1999. When, when Chavez came to power, were all these expropriations of, of several companies working there. And again, instead of putting people that really know what they were doing, they, you know, replaced them with people that did not have the experience or the will. Before Chavez died in 2013, his policies helped millions of the poorest Venezuelans. But those policies also emptied out the state-owned oil company. The country's economy has shrunk more than 50% in the last five years. Venezuela used to produce 3.5 million barrels a day of oil, and that that production has dropped, some say, to 700,000 a day, some say it's even less. And and basically what, what economists say is that it's the only country where you see a situation like this one that has not been through a war or a natural disaster. Teresa, you mentioned Maracaibo was in trouble. What did you find when you got there? Well, Maracaibo is very, very hot. The weather is is extremely hot. So it was once known as the coolest city in the country, mostly because of the amount of air conditionings that people had there. And we went to all these neighborhoods at night uh, to talk to people uh, they were telling us that, you know, they're not used to, to this situation. They're not used to living with the heat. That night when we were going around this, this small area of the city, 
you know, we saw people living in mattresses, um, no electricity, people complaining that all their food, whatever they can buy, is going to waste. And aside from the troubles that are already affecting Venezuela, like shortages of medicines and the difficulty to buy food, because there's a big change. You know, a few years ago, I used to go to Venezuela and it was difficult to find food. Well, now you can find food, but because of hyperinflation, um, you, people cannot buy it because a minimum wage basically buys two pieces of cheese. So it sounds like times are pretty bad for a lot of people, but Maricaibo has been through this for a while. They've been having power cuts since 2017. Yes, that's correct. And, and that has a, a big impact on, on, on everything. I mean, people want their phones charged. They want their TVs. They want their conditioning, you know. And the biggest problem is water. I mean, they need electricity in order to get water. So people are, you know, going around with this big pot uh, of water. Sometimes it's not clean. And that has also provoked lots of illness among several children. It's a big, big struggle to actually get something as basic as water. And, you know, most of the analysts we have spoken to trying to understand, you know, how could it be that there's this enormous amount of power cuts, this lack of maintenance, which basically shows that, you know, there's uh, an infrastructure problem that is enormous and that until now the government has not been able to solve. For a lot of our listeners, they may know what it's like to be without electricity for maybe a day, a couple of days tops if there's a power outage. But for many people, we can't even fathom what this is like on a long-term basis and what that means for daily life. Yes, going around, the most striking thing that I notice is that there's no traffic lights. So there's like lots of accidents on the streets because of the lack of power. And at least in two different situations, we were almost crashed by another vehicle. Because one thing is not to have power for a while, but then it's running an entire city without electricity. I know that you visited a couple of protests where people are protesting for change and protesting against the lack of electricity and water. What did those people tell you about their struggle? Yeah, I mean, there, there's, you know, this neighborhood we visited, they're protesting every day. Literally at 7 o'clock in the afternoon and at 11 o'clock in the morning, they go and start protesting and chanting against the government. Uh, we met uh, Maria Betancourt. She's been protesting every day um, for, for you know, several months, again, demanding electricity. Um, her daughter died during, you know, one night during the power cuts. We don't have light. We don't have water. We're sleeping on the streets at risk of being robbed, of being killed. My daughter died of respiratory failure. She had pneumonia and I had to keep taking her out to sleep on the street. And that caused her respiratory failure. Why? Because of the decline we're all living through. She told us that, you know, the power outages that when the night her daughter died um, lasted for up to 20 hours. The city is named for the lake that it sits on, Lake Maracaibo. And this is a remarkable place. It's where these rivers meet the Caribbean. And it's really important ecologically because it used to be a source of fresh water and a big source of fish. Yes, we did several stories there. We went out in this small boat to, to go around the lake and uh, 
you know, you're seeing a place that was beautiful. It was completely, you know, all the coast was filled with oil. Their houses, because people, their houses are right next to, to the lake. Everything is dirty with oil. Uh, fishermen were telling us that it's completely, you know, devastated by this oil and gas leaks. Mostly what we were able to see is this fisherman with shrimps filled with oil and their boats being, you know, all tainted with with oil and you know they were telling us that several years ago they were paid by PDVSA which is Venezuela's state oil company to actually help clean the lake. We never saw this here before and if a pipe or something broke around here the company would come and fix it immediately and they'd pay whatever damages the oil spill caused. Now it's been abandoned because there's, you know, no investment and, you know, they're not um, cleaning it. And, and I think this is kind of the heart of the problem of what happened in Venezuela. We depend on this. My children depend on this, on my work. So every day we're seeing this get worse and worse. There are oil spills that are even bigger. You met other people who live on and around the lake. Tell us about some of the families you met. We found this case where this man was completely undernourished. Jorge Gonzalez is a 33-year-old man who has autism. He cannot walk, he cannot stand. And his sister, Gisenia, just loves him so much. What do you need? His health, just for him to be healthy. He doesn't have anywhere to sleep. He sleeps in a half-stitched hammock. She kept on hugging him and touching him and saying how much she loves her brother, but that she cannot feed him. We met another mother, for example, there, that she had five children. The kids were all naked. I mean, they had no clothes at all. And one of the kids got sick, and the woman told me that she had to sell a window. I mean, she the little house, which was extremely poor, that she had, she took the window from the wall and sold it to be able to pay for the medicines. And we were all like, what? You took a window out of the wall? And she was like... Yes, I mean, there's people buying some old, you know, and, and used items. And she got some money to get um, salbutamol, which is basically for, for kids with asthma. You know, it was, you know, how, how terrible the situation has to be for a mother to be so desperate to go and get a window out of the, of the wall to be able to buy, you know, some medicines. And that's, you know, what's, what's shocking in a country that produces oil, that wants that has the largest oil reserves in the, in the world, uh, and that is, the government is not being able to find a solution to, to the economic situation. But which government, or rather, which president? Since January, two men have claimed the presidency, Chavez successor Nicolas Maduro and opposition leader Juan Guaido. Guaido declared himself president after the National Assembly said Maduro's last election victory was illegitimate. And Guaido has the support of the U.S. and 50 other countries. They backed up that support with economic sanctions meant to undermine Maduro's power. That was nine months ago. I was there in January. 
in Venezuela when he first declared himself interim president. And it seems that he is, in a way, losing momentum. I mean, Guaidó appeared with all these promises that something was going to change fast, that, you know, Maduro was going to leave. Well, that's not what we're seeing right now in Venezuela. For some time, people were ready to go out and protest. They were ready, you know, to believe in something different. But now they have to go on with their day-to-day -day lives. They have to go out and work. You know, it takes them hours to get gas. It takes them hours to get food. So, so many of the people we have spoken to have lost hope. So while people are going on with their day-to-day -day life, who is the president of the country right now? Is it Nicolas Maduro? Is it Guaido? Well, I mean, it, it, it depends who you ask. I mean, if you talk to those who support the opposition, they'll say Guaido is the president. But the truth is the president, Nicolas Maduro, controls institutions, controls the military, has ac access to most Venezuelan assets, at least in the country, because many of the assets, Venezuelan assets in the United States and other countries have been frozen. But in the country, Maduro is still in control. You know, he's the man that runs day-to-day -day affairs in Venezuela. And the government is, you know, basically says the United States is to blame for everything. And you're talking about the sanctions. The U.S. has been implementing sanctions against Venezuela for years. But since this political turmoil started in January, those sanctions have increased. The U.S. and other countries have frozen Venezuela's assets abroad as a way to limit the Maduro government's ability to sell oil. You sat down with Guaido last month. What does he think about all of this? He's, you know, been calling for people not to lose hope, um, to continue uh, protesting, taking action on the streets. These sanctions aim to pressure a dictator. It's a tool of the free world of modern diplomacy to pressure Maduro's regime. The sanctions are not the cause of the economic downturn. It's the dictatorship that has made Venezuela very poor. It sees a fertile field, and they never cultivated it further. I do think that recent sanctions will have an enormous impact on the deterioration of the country. This is needless to say, and that's why there are many who oppose sanctions. I mean, when you look into North Korea, you look at, to Iran, you look to Cuba, you know, what have the sanctions achieved? Sanctions have impoverished the population, made them more dependent on the governments, and the governments remain the same. But we've already started seeing an, an enormous deterioration of, of the Venezuelan economy back in 2015. There were some sanctions implemented back then, but it was mostly, you know, mismanagement, corruption. This summer, the two sides met for peace talks organized by Norway in Barbados. But the dialogue stalled after Maduro's people walked out in protest of new sanctions from the U.S. For now, the only ones suffering the consequences are the people. It's extremely difficult to find happy people. Everywhere we go, we find people that have lost their loved ones because of the economic crisis. Either it's because of an illness, because they couldn't find medicines, because of electricity, because of food. Um, it's, it's a, you know, very, very sad uh, situation in a country that once had lots of benefits for, for the population. Teresa told us that Maracaibo isn't a city that's in the news often. When people talk about Venezuela, they talk about Caracas. But 
Maracaibo has been on our team's radar for a while. And that's because of Ney Alvarez. He's one of our senior producers, the one who's produced this episode, actually. And he grew up in Maracaibo. I sat down with him in the studio, and we work there together all the time. But it took us a minute to settle into interviewee mode. Can you introduce yourself for our audience who doesn't have the chance? If you don't have the chance, whatever. Hi, Nate. You're <laughs> <laughs> starting great. I know. <laughs> okay. okay, bloopers. <clears throat> we eventually got our bearings. So how long did you live there and when did you leave? Um, my entire life, basically. I left Maracaibo when I was 29 in 2008. And I've been in America almost for 11 years. What do you remember about Lake Maracaibo? Oh, my God. Um, I think one of the best things about Maracaibo, yes, it's hot, it's humid, but people there are extremely friendly. People will always help you out. People have a lot of sense of pride of the city. So people basically, we have like a, our own music, our own style of folklore music that is called gaitas. And people love gaitas. Um, and uh, we're fun. We eat. We're loud. We have a lot of these characteristics. It's our heritage, and that's the way we are. What was Maracaibo like when you were growing up there? I was born in 1978. So growing up, it was the 80s. And when I was a kid, uh, there was a lot of abundance. Um, the oil company was in a boom. It was a city that was in constant development. I'm talking about beautiful buildings, um, malls everywhere, like high-end um, hotels, convention centers, beautiful churches. And we had a lot of people from all over the world there, too, a lot of Syrians, a, a lot of Palestinians, because it became also not only an oil hub, but it was also a commercial space because there was so much money. When I left, that still was happening, but there was a lot of violence. Like, before I left, even Caracas wasn't as dangerous. Like, I remember being assaulted while I was jogging one day at 3, 4 p.m. in the afternoon. When was the last time you were there? 2008. I never been back. And you still have family there? My mom is there, my brother, my dad. Yeah. So working on this story must invoke a sense of nostalgia, but also you're learning because you haven't been there. And so hearing Teresa explain what it's like now, what surprised you about what you've learned? It was very interesting to be able to have that first row kind of view for uh, my city. But it was so strange to see streets that I recognized that now look like there was some kind of civil war there. I mean, after 11 years almost, you know, seeing uh, your streets and noticing that they're missing things, right? I mean, uh, no traffic lights or people started stealing things like metal. So it's, it's, it's extremely heartbreaking to see that. And I think one of the most significant things about Maracaibo is our proximity to the lake. I mean, when you grow up around water, it becomes part of you. So I think that's one of the things that also was very weird to see the lake during 
Teresa's reporting, like seeing this basically a big stain of black oil in the coast, you know, those coasts were never like that. How does reporting this story and what's happened make you feel about home and make you feel for the next generations who still live in your old home? So every time I think about my the next generation, I think about my nieces and nephew. And my oldest niece, she's over 23. I think about her all the time because she doesn't know anything else. She doesn't know about prosperity. She doesn't know about what it means to being able to go somewhere to a party and not thinking that she's going to be assaulted or robbed or kidnapped. She grew up like that, like in all of them, my nieces and my nephew, they don't know anything else. Are you ever going to go back? I hope so. I mean, I hope that one day I can go back and find some of the people that I left there, friends. I follow a lot of them, you know, on Facebook or Instagram, and I see many of their struggle. I mean, I see how much they're suffering. I see friends who are colleagues who are not able to buy shoes. It it goes beyond what you can imagine. It's like a country that actually went to war without having ever been to war. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Ney Alvarez and Priyanka Tilvey with Amy Walters, Alexandra Locke, Dina Kispe, Morgan Waters, and me, Malika Bilal. Natalia Aldana is a social media producer. Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks this week to Teresa Bo, Juan Maju, Lagni Chavez, Gustavo Ocando, Michael Bendek, Enrique Waikil, and Sana Saeed. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, go to aljazeera.com slash the take. You can find subscribe links there. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram. You'll find us at AJ the Take. We'll be back next week.